Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Prayers of King David, with a message titled, A Prayer of the Wrongfully Accused. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 17 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever heard the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, in some cases that is true, but smoke can come from other sources. One website that I found said many materials will smoke without ever reaching ignition temperature. Well, this is not a sermon about what causes smoke. This is about the causes of accusations against others. And here the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire, can be very harmful. You know, in the minds of many, if there's an accusation, there's got to be a legitimate reason for it. I know people who live by that supposed rule, and so they pay attention to slander and criticism and rumors and words whispered among people and pernicious ongoing accusations and stories of what an individual supposedly did. And even though they have no evidence these stories are true, simply hearing them repeated is enough for them. And of course, the longer stories are repeated, the more sure people become that the stories must be true. After all, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so in this manner, reputations are ruined and relationships are destroyed and jobs are lost and great harm is done. And when it comes to law, sometimes even the police who investigate are incapable of separating out truth from error. The Innocence Project uses DNA testing, and it's found a number of people that are now being held in prison to, in fact, be innocent. You know, one of the hardest things is for the innocent to bear up under wrongful accusation. Please remember, if you don't think this happens regularly, that our Lord and Savior was wrongfully accused and put to death. Such is the nature of evil in this world. Lies, half-truths, rumors, suspicions that spring from fertile minds, all of this comes from the evil one. And the evil one continues to trade in these kinds of things. He does so because the path of destruction that comes from it is so great. Psalm 17 is the prayer of a man who's been wrongfully accused. In this case, the man is David. There's been a discussion as to what gave rise to this psalm, and it seems to me that it is quite possible that the answer is probably the rumors that came from King Saul to attempt to paint David as a criminal who sought to put the king to death and to install himself as king. In consequence, David becomes a man on the run. People think if they put David to death, they will rid Israel of a very dangerous traitor. And so let's begin by reading Psalm 17. The first five verses are the cry of the innocent man who's been accused. So let's read. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So let's begin with a charge that's often made against David for, for writing this psalm. You know, some say David's claiming to be self-righteous, and he claims he has no sin. And to that, I would respond in two ways. First, David does not claim to be sin-free. Rather, he claims he's not guilty of the charges that are brought against him, and that's very important. 
A person being accused of something does not have to claim that he's free from all sin, only that he's not guilty of the things that are said against him or her. Bear that in mind. It doesn't do to say, well, you know, you've sinned in other areas. No, no, that kind of thinking is not only wrong, it's destructive. I mean, outside of Jesus himself, we've all sinned. But never confuse that statement with a wrongful accusation. And second, in a wonderful way, we can, when reading Psalm 17, think of Jesus himself, who was not guilty of any sin, but still accusations were made against him. In the same way, if you're being wrongfully accused, don't bear the false guilt by saying, well, you know, people wouldn't be accusing me if there wasn't something wrong in me. No, no, Jesus had nothing wrong in him and was accused. So very well, let's begin with verse 1. David begins with the words, Hear a just cause, O Lord. David appeals to God, knowing he's not guilty of the things men say of him. When he prays, he's not hypocritical. He knows himself to be innocent. He is not being fomenting rebellion in Israel. But let me add a word of application because I find this to be very important. The accusation made against David is that he was promoting treason in Israel and that he was plotting the death of the king. And I point this out because much of the gossip that sometimes passes between people is gossip about inner attitudes. Things like, you know, Lucy is standoffish and arrogant, or Harry's not concerned with anyone but himself, or Richard is unfriendly. Let me speak about these things. Inner attitudes, things that, you know, we can't verify objectively. Well, all of God's people ought to resist this. Never, never trade in rumors about the inner state of anyone. How dare you speak of others in that fashion when Jesus himself expressly told us not to do so. Indeed, if you repeat that kind of gossip, the person you speak about is not guilty. You are. You're a gossiper. It's a sin. Now, getting back to this psalm, David prays to God, and he's not saying, I'm not guilty of any sin. He's saying, I'm not guilty of this sin. Yet these men bring untrue accusations against me. Note verse 2. David wants to be vindicated. He wants to mount a defense. But note that he wants his vindication to come from God. That doesn't mean that he's unconcerned that he be proved, you know, right before men. I mean, we have to assume, look, David's human. He cares. But these accusations are being believed. But David also knows that the thing he cares about most is that he wants his vindication to come from God. Think how different David is from so many others. David wants to be vindicated before God because it is there where it really matters. You know, others care only about their reputation before people and seem to be completely unconcerned if their reputation before God lies in ruins. They care about what people think. But David cares about what God thinks. Now listen, to all those who have never been able to clear their names because of half-truths and rumors, simply pray like David. Let your eyes, O God, behold my right. And then in verse 3, David asks God to test him fully. See, David's confident that when it comes to the things about which men accuse him, on those matters, God is not accusing him. And consider that for a moment. David's not saying God will find me sinless. As we can see from verse 4, David is responding to the claims made by some that he's a violent man. No doubt people could point to David's exploits on the battlefield. And now people were pointing out to David and saying, look, he's a fugitive from justice. Where there's smoke, there's fire. David's steadfast. 
in regard to these charges, he says, I'm not guilty. Indeed, I'm not violent, and I've shunned the way of violence. And when it's been in my hand to harm the king of Israel, I have refused. Now, of course, this kind of prayer can only be uttered by a person who has held to the paths of God. The person who secretly carried on an adulterous relationship, let's say, and now swears before God that, you know, he's innocent, can't pray as David does. You know, this prayer only works when we're free of the things about which people are accusing us of. Now, having said this, David now prays for protection, for he knows how destructive are the rumors that are raised against him. Psalm 17, 6-9, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Now, this prayer is very precious. You see, if you, my friend, right now are being falsely accused, may I encourage you to pray verses 6 to 9 repeatedly. God does hear. And notice the words. I call upon you, incline your ear to me, hear my words. The plea is that God will not ignore him or pay no attention to what has been happening. Look in my direction, says David. And then also notice David's strong confidence. You know, verse 6 has the words, you will answer me. God won't forget those who have been slandered. And this leads some to wonder, you know, if this is always so. I mean, there are there some who are now listening to my voice, and you have been wrongfully accused. And it's now felt like you've never been vindicated. Yeah, David has wanted to be vindicated before God, but if you're honest, you also want to be vindicated before men. And before we come to that, would you please notice the rest of the things that are said? Verse 7, which says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, can also be translated as, Distinguish me by your steadfast love. And if that's correct, and I believe it is, the prayer seems to say, God, show that you've loved me. God, give evidence before me and before others that you favor me. That is, set me apart from the wicked. And it's the same sense we get in Exodus 8:22, which says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so no swarm of flies shall dwell there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. That is, God favored Israel. That's what David prays. While people are slandering me, God favor me. Show me your continual favor. It's no secret that in today's society, we're inundated with a chorus of voices trying to shape our lives. They seek to influence our purchases, entertainment, political stance, moral standards, and daily activities. And if we try to bend to them all, we'll lead diffused, dizzy lives. So who is the umpire of life? Well, God is. His voice matters above all others. And Back to the Bible Canada exists to emphasize the centrality of God's voice, God's Word. That is why this month we're offering a booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This booklet does not promote defiance or apathy, but is a call to humbly submit to the voice of God. So to request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible And don't hesitate, because supplies are limited.
God blesses his people in numerous ways. He answers their prayers. He gives them fruitful ministry. He favors them with loving kindness. He gives them deep inner stability and steadfastness. Others crumble, but God's people stand. God makes a distinction on the lives of those he favors. Slanderers may continue to slander, but God pours out his love on those who are his own. He may even perform miracles to showcase his love for his own. And so when David wants God to wondrously showcase his steadfast love, he wants God to make it known. And in David's case, it was true. He might have become a hunted fugitive, but at the same time, God was blessing David even while he was hiding out in the desert. And the rest of the prayers in this verse showcase that, that God has indeed been answering David's prayer. David speaks of seeking refuge in God, and indeed, that's what happened. Saul continued to chase David to kill him, but he was unable to do so. David prayed to be kept as the apple of God's eye and to be sheltered under his wing. Indeed, David did feel that in the midst of troubles, God did not take his eyes off him. God did prevent his enemies from triumphing over him. But now after uttering that prayer, the one that we find in verses 6 to 9, David then returns to a description of his enemies. Even though God has favored him and protected him and never let his eyes depart from his servant, David notes that the enemies haven't gone away. They're still there. Verses 10 to 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. And we might read those lines and reflect at how similar they are to Psalm 119, 69 to 70. Let me read that. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight your law. Now, in Psalm 119, the idea that a heart could be as unfeeling as fat means that their hearts are enclosed in fat and nothing gets through. In Psalm 17, verse 10, the idea is that the heart shows no pity, that is, feelings for their victim never actually penetrates the hearts of the wicked. We needlessly ask ourselves of the wicked who try to destroy us whether they should turn around and feel some compassion for us. We might as well ask ourselves if the high priests and religious teachers of Israel felt any pity when they nailed Christ to the cross, for I tell you they did not. Their only thought was utterly triumphing over their enemy. And for that reason, David says, with their mouths, they speak arrogantly. That is, they use their mouths to do him as much damage as they can. Look at verse 11. They have now surrounded our steps. That sounds very much like what David experienced in 1 Samuel 23, 24 to 27. Let me read it. Now, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. That is... David would have never gotten away on that occasion had Saul not been interrupted by a military emergency. 
But you can almost see the description that David gives of Saul. He's like a lion. He's eager to tear. He's closing in on his prey. He's anticipating the kill. He's licking his lips. The ultimate destruction of David is at hand. And David says, even though God has favored me, that hasn't meant that Saul has noticed, and it doesn't mean he stopped chasing me. You know, sometimes when God's people have been falsely accused by others, and when the accusation comes from people who have no pity, no regard for the harm that they do, now we might cry out, God, why don't you just stop them? Couldn't you just give Saul a heart attack or something? You know, he just won't stop. Yeah, you've shown David your grace. You've favored him. You've vindicated him in the courts of heaven. But on the battleground of earth, the wicked men simply will not stop until they have destroyed David. And indeed, that is what David thought. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 27, we hear David saying in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That is, eventually, if this thing just carries on, one day he's going to get me. So getting back to Psalm 17, we, we have to hear the prayer of David in those terms. So verses 13 and 14, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. That's important for us to hear the the pathos in these words. The first part is David's plea, arise, O Lord. Don't delay any longer. I know that eventually you're going to judge them. Do it now. Act quickly, David prays. And then he prays a specific request. First, he wants God to confront him, stand in his way, let him know that he's angered you. Second, he wants God to subdue him, that is, conquer him, defeat him, let him fall by your hand. And then third comes the request, deliver my soul. Finally and ultimately, give me relief. I've been persecuted from this man for a long time. Let me come to the place where the persecuting stops. And then David goes even further. He tells God how God might accomplish that. Do it, says David, by your sword. That is, David was never under any illusions. He knew that even as men and armies had swords, God also had a sword, and his sword was the ultimate one. Encounter the sword of God on the battlefield, and you're always going to lose. You die. David says, let my enemies encounter your sword and be brought to death. You know, some of us, when we read this, might feel shocked. I mean, why doesn't David pray for the repentance of his enemies or their conversion or for reconciliation with them? Indeed, our Lord and Savior, while being nailed to the cross, did pray for the forgiveness of the soldiers who were nailing him there. But here, I'm going to shock you even more by pointing out something that we almost never say. Yeah, Jesus did pray for the soldiers nailing him to the cross, but why? He said, they don't know what they're doing. That is, they're not aware of the great evil they're participating in. But please notice that Jesus did not pray the same prayer for the chief priests and the religious men who occupied the Sanhedrin, those very ones who condemned him. Those men did know what they were doing. Look, I'm not saying that we know the internal condition of all those who do evil. We we simply don't. But David is aware that Saul, as well as his military commanders, know what they're doing, and he awaits the judgment of God. But in the meantime, David also notices that these evildoers have a portion in this life, but not in the life to come. I mean, these people don't contemplate eternity and the values of the kingdom of God. I mean, they contemplate how they can gain power in this life and overcome all obstacles so that their power might increase. Now, David knows very well what motivates these evildoers. Their portion, he says, is in this life. 
That's the motivation they have. They, says David, fill their wombs with treasure. That is, they amass as much wealth and power as they can, and then they leave their abundance to their children so that they keep their power from generation to generation. That's how they think, not in eternal terms, but in earthly terms. It's interesting to me that when Paul speaks of his own conversion, Because as we know, he had been an evil man persecuting the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he received mercy because, he says, he acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Now, of course, it's hard for us to judge who's ignorant and who's knowingly in rebellion against God. But David knows that Saul's only portion is in this world. And with that, David ends the psalm. And I'm reading here verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David has not yet received the answer to his prayer. When he writes Psalm 17, Saul is still raging against him, and wicked rumors are still circulating, and he's still being hunted. Saul is having his way, and David is not. Indeed, this is a part of the ways of God. He did answer David's prayer eventually. It happened on God's timetable, not David's. But in the meantime, while David waited, he was not frustrated or angry or despondent. Rather, David told himself that even though the present life was hard, his satisfaction would not be in the downfall of his enemies, but rather in beholding the face of God. His satisfaction would be that he had been called into relationship with God. David's great joy would not be overcoming all the obstacles in this life. For if that had been his joy, he himself would have been a wicked man whose only hope was in this life. But as it is, David confessed that his greatest joy was not deliverance from his enemies, but rather seeing the face of the righteous God. If you're being wrongfully accused right now, may that be so with you. And may you find peace in the loving embrace of the God who cares for you. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I think it's difficult to not jump to conclusions when we hear a charge come up against somebody, particularly in the area perhaps of sexual infidelity or promiscuity that seems to be increasingly present even in the church today. But how should we respond to those reports? Yeah, that's such a good question. And Ben, because so many people have been found to be guilty of these kinds of sins, it's very easy then to say, well, there's just another one. And I think, uh, I think for the integrous Christian who seeks to be evidence-driven, that we would not rush to judgment, that we would take our time to hear the evidence that comes in, and only then conclude when the evidence is unmistakably clear that the person is indeed guilty. And if not, I think we need to do that which is right to continue to hold, withhold judgment. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series prayers of King David right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery, time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, 
This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.